This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Well, Australian Prime Ministers can be defined into two categories. There are those who enter politics as just pliant, vacillating politicians with no coherent set of principles. Now, this type of Prime Minister never seems to be in control of events, but always their victim. As a result, they leave little of worth as a legacy. Now, most Prime Ministers fit into this rather undistinguished group. Then there's a second category, truly exceptional individuals with the courage and the will to shape history. They enter politics with a firm set of beliefs and thereafter stick pretty closely to them. Now, this type is extremely rare. Obviously, the great Labor leader Bob Hawke comes to mind, as does our longest-serving Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies. My first guest is another example. John Howard, Prime Minister from March 96 to November 2007. Now, whatever one thought of Howard's politics and philosophy of government, and our guest certainly had no shortage of detractors during his 33-year public life, I think it's fair to say that... uh, It's widely believed, at least, that he made the political weather, as they say in Britain. During his 12 years in power, Howard combined strong convictions about a wide range of public policy issues with the kind of prudence that is a subject of his new book. It's called A Sense of Balance. It's published by HarperCollins. John Howard, welcome to Between the Lines. Very good to be here, Tom. Now, summarise your thesis. Well, my thesis is that one of the really outstanding features of Australia is that in so many areas... We have achieved a sense of balance. We're not too crazily one side or the other of arguments. And this really goes back to the time of British settlement. One of the clever things this country did was to choose the good bits of our British heritage. That's the rule of law, freedom of the press, parliamentary democracy. In many respects, not totally, our sense of humour, some <laughs> some sporting passions, uh, although there's a big swathe of Australia, namely the four southern states, as I call them, <laughs> that uh, invented their own game. And good luck to them. It's a great game and it has a sort of a universal hold on their affections. But what we did, having chosen the good things, was say, we're not going to have the bad bits. The bad bits were class distinctions, any aristocracy. And, of course, um, we cleverly chose, um, because of our heavy Celtic origins, we cleverly chose the scepticism that is so redolent uh, of the Celtic disposition. So we got a good sense of balance from uh, our British inheritance, and uh, I think that was... and, And we've demonstrated that balance in so many areas, as I describe in the book, education, health and the like. Yeah, and this sense of balance <laughs> has existed despite the various different governments over the last yeah, uh, well, 120 years. We, we haven't veered too far mm. to the left or the right, despite what some commentators say. I don't, of course, include uh, you in that, Tom, but uh, <laughs> uh, and other distinguished commentators on the ABC and otherwise, but we haven't veered too far. That thesis of yours, I think it helps explain why we've had 30 years of prosperity and relative peace, notwithstanding the war on terror. But is your optimism about this country, is it unfounded during, let's be frank, increasingly pessimistic times? Yes, it is. 
I think it's needed. That sense of balance is needed even more mm. during difficult times. It's not a time to run away from balance. When you've got challenges, you need balance because you need cooperation. And if the extremist side of an argument takes hold, you don't get cooperation. We all know that during wartime, and we're not in wartime, nothing like it, and God forbid we ever should be in it again, but during times of real national emergency, you want cooperation. Well, let's start with the economy. Real wages are falling. Inflation is at its highest level in decades. Uh, productivity growth never really recovered after the financial crisis in 08, 09. Government spending as a percentage of GDP is rising, even after a decade of uh, coalition rule. That's a pretty grim economic outlook, isn't it? Yes, it is, but we have low unemployment. And we seem to forget that. 3.4%. Well, it's amazing. Mm, 50 years I mean, I remember when I was Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister of the time was Tony Blair, who was a Labor Prime Minister, and he had a wonderful statement. He said, um, fairness in the workplace starts with the chance of a job. So if you apply that Labor, British Labor, albeit, uh, definition to our current economic circumstances, then we have a very fair workplace. Yet all I hear, uh, understandably, is, is talk about the need to get real wages growing again. What I would like to see come out at or probably after the uh, jobs and skills summit would be an explanation from our economic experts in the Treasury and the Reserve Bank as to why we have this contradictory paradigm of very low unemployment yet stagnant wages. Now, yeah. I haven't heard a decent explanation of it. I've heard plenty of propaganda uh, from Sally McManus about how it's, it's all due to mean mm. employers. Uh, most employers I know want a happy workforce and they know a happy workforce is a workforce that's well okay, paid and has a What about job. inflation? Let's talk about inflation because surely the COVID fiscal response, which you supported, you gave strong support to Josh Frydenberg when he presided over those massive stimulus packages, they were bipartisan. You've got the colossal rise in borrowing, the additional money pumped into the economy to fight the virus. And of course, you've had the COVID-inspired supply shocks. Rising inflation is leading to rising interest rates. Talk about unintended consequences. Well, I think one of the mistakes that was made was that interest rates were cut too far for too long. Uh, there was no petrol left in the tank. I think those last two reductions on the way down to mm. zero that mm. were undertaken by the Reserve Bank about four or five years ago were mistaken. And if we hadn't gone down as far, then we wouldn't be feeling some apprehension about the need to go up at a fairly rapid rate. But just look at the perspective. Interest rates are still at historically low levels. I thought it was possible to say until a couple of months ago, and it's still possible now to say this, that there's not a person alive who's seen lower interest rates than we have at the moment. Yes, that's true, but there's always a lag, uh, as you well, know. Well, of course there's a lag, but that... And, well, there's and, a lot and, of younger people who've bought into the housing market. I, I understand, and everything is relative, mm. and you've, you've got to understand the context. If you borrowed at virtually zero, and it's zero plus 
a half a percent, well, that's uh, a, a, a lot more expensive than you thought. During your 12-year tenure, you and Peter Costello, your government, balanced the budget, you eliminated public debt. Where are the politicians in Canberra today criticising the magic money tree? This is the idea that budgets never need to be balanced or that money can be borrowed indefinitely to finance unlimited spending. Where are those politicians calling for, for real restraint? Tom, I think that is a very valid point, and I would hope in the months ahead, the debate sees those calls emerge. I, I, I think it's needed. Now, we have to look at the perspective. Again, we had to go into debt because the government put the economy into recession. It was the first recession I've, I've seen, or like close to recession, that the government had caused. Mm. Normally, <laughs> recessions occur right. despite the wishes of the yes. government. But we put the country, when I say we, I mean the government, yeah. uh, put the economy in a recession. Exceptional in, circumstances. In, in, and, and it therefore had to bail it out. And I agreed with the rescue package. And so did the Labor Party in opposition. They actually wanted to go further. Yes, but has a Canberra class become complacent about uh, well, these Well, I issues? think there's a danger of that. And I think one of the both obligations and opportunities uh, of the opposition the new opposition, yes. and it's still early days. And yes. the first few months of a new government, particularly after nine years on the other side, uh, you're banging your head against a brick wall saying too much. But after a while, I hope to see emerging from the opposition. Okay, but back to this 30-year prosperity we yes. had. Three decades virtually without a recession until COVID. Whatever your differences, you and Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, your government supported market-oriented growth reform agendas uh, to improve the incentives to work, lift productivity, boost competitiveness. Where are those in politics today that show the slightest zeal of prosecuting an economic reform agenda? They are hard to find. I, I agree with that. And I had the view that one of the reasons that the coalition lost the May election was that it didn't have a long-term economic plan. And I, I would like to see that emerge. I would like to see the government mm the Labor government developed a plan, and I look with great interest on Dr Chalmers, uh, must be respectful, his budget in August, and okay. I hope there is some productivity in it. I suppose the point I'm making is that there seems to be, particularly among young people, that the good times can, can just keep rolling. But, you, I mean, the point that you made in office, and Hawke and Keating, was that you need to put in place reforms to keep productivity up. It just doesn't happen. No, no. We, we have had a productivity drought mm. over the last five to ten years. Now, some of that is um, because of exceptional circumstances. Some of it is a, is a lack of policy zeal. Some of it is a belief that it will just happen without effort. Now, it never happens without effort. You've got to keep going. It's a never-ending foot race, as I used to say, and if you stop... Uh, your competitors will surge past you. I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. My guest is John Howard, our nation's second longest serving Prime Minister. Cancel culture. Now, this is the phenomenon by which anyone in public life, the media, academy, uh, they run afoul of the dominant progressive narrative. Now, to get your thoughts on the demonisation recently of those Christian rugby league players uh, who refused to wear the rainbow-draped manly football jersey. What did you make of that controversy? Well, I thought they were quite justified in taking the stance they did. I'm not sure they were demonised by everybody. 
I think any, more, any more than I thought Israel Folau mm. uh, was... So the silent majority uh, was with him, you think? Uh, well, it, it's hard to measure that. I'm, I didn't have access to an, <laughs> an instant snap opinion poll, but my sense was that people thought that it was sprung on them. They weren't asked and they had a perfect right. I mean, it's, it's not as if people playing football, particularly those who are islanders, Yes. Uh, don't demonstrate their faith. I mean, I often see people after they've scored a try make the sign of the cross. Yeah. Or, or I saw one, you know, carrying a, an armband with the word Jesus on it. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, people are entitled to do that and, and good luck to them. Uh, so I, it, it, it's not as if there wasn't a warning of it. And um, I, I think, to be fair to the Manly Warringah Club, I think the, the, the press conference that, that Des Hasler mm-hmm. gave mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. he's a good coach... Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he understood the difficulties and it was probably a bit of insensitivity, but I'm not certain that they were demonised. Okay. I think the mob out there thought, well, whether we agree or disagree with them, yes, uh, they've got a right. Yes. Well, let's talk about identity politics just generally. I mean, I think it's fair to say this is a widespread view that identity politics is more self-evident in the United States and Britain than it is here. But what about universities just generally? I mean, they've been at the forefront of recent years of restricting freedom of speech. And as I say, this is particularly noticeable in North America and Europe. Anyone with counter-orthodox views about a wide variety of issues, transgender issues to even aspects of capitalism, they're liable to suffer the uh, the prospect of de-platforming, which, as you know, is an ugly word. But let's talk about the University of Sydney, your alma mater, they argued that the subject of Western civilization was inherently racist, and that's why the proposal of the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization, uh, of which you chair, this was just a proposal to start a course of, of, of studying Western civilization in collaboration with the university, and it failed. What does that tell you well, about to, the intellectual to be, climate? To be fair to the university, and I have no reason to sort of use that expression on this issue, <laughs> except it's relevant. Uh, they would argue that that wasn't the reason those negotiations found. But it is clear. Well. It was clear to me at the time, it remains clear, but there was strong opposition uh, to um, any partnership with Ramsey on the grounds that it was some kind of white supremacist superiority, which, of course, it wasn't. I think what you've got to do in those situations, Tom, is you've got to call them out. Mm. And I would like to see more uh, occasions when... Political figures, whether they're Liberal, Labor, whatever, are standing up and denouncing. See, there's too much timidity with these things. People feel that if they put their hand up and say, hey, hang on, this is, this is a bit rich, we're not racist, we just happen to be proud of the civilization that gave us in part the prosperity we have, people have got to be courageous enough to say that and not feel that they'll get dumped on from a great height. And, and page I think too one many of your people book, are timid. Page one of your book, it's not white triumphalism to celebrate the Australian achievement. Yes, well, I think uh, uh, I find the expression the Australian achievement, which incidentally um, was the description that Malcolm Fraser wanted to give to the 200-year celebration of British settlement. Uh, 1988. I, I, think, yeah. I think in 1988, I think it's a wonderful encapsulation. It's an achievement. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not triumphalism, it's not racism, it's not extreme, it's just a fair description of an achievement. What about the voice, the voice to Parliament? Well, I'm in favour of something in being put in the Constitution that recognises... Well, you, you helped trigger the debate, oh, didn't I you, did. in 2007? Well, yes, I did. I, I, I did help trigger the debate by saying 
just before I was thrown out of office in 2007 <laughs> that I thought it would be a good idea to recognise in the Constitution, amongst other things, the undeniable truth that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were here first. Now, something like that would draw, I believe, overwhelming support because people know it's true. Mm. Uh, now, if that is just seen as empty symbolism, well, uh, so be it. But I, I do say to people who support the voice, I say two things. Firstly, Australians are very wary about changing their constitution because they felt it's, they feel it's contributed uh, to our, um, our security. They really do. And the second thing I'd say is that please don't label anybody who disagrees with the voice as being insensitive to Aboriginal people because they're not. Let's turn to public discourse just generally. Many commentators, such as the esteemed journalist Paul Kelly, they lament that politics, mainly because of Twitter and social media, it's become even more polarising and toxic today. If the Kellys of the world are right, where's the objectivity, the perspective, the honesty on which you place heavy emphasis in your book? Where are those fine qualities in today's attempts to deal with major policy challenges? Tom, we could always have a lot more of that objectivity and balance uh, of which you speak, but I'm not quite as um, pessimistic as the description you ascribe uh, to Paul Kelly. Mind you, you never had to deal with Twitter. Well, I'd never had to deal with Twitter, but there were I had to deal with you know people who likened me to Adolf Hitler and mm, things true. like and, that. And, uh, well, I won't mention it, but yeah, Mungo and, McCallum, all that. Yeah. Yeah, all of that, all of mm. that, yeah. Uh, that's been there for a long time and some of the things that were said from the non-Labor side of politics about Gough Whitlam. Yes. Uh, but, the, but the pace has changed dramatically as a result well, of social media, has, the media because cycle. the pace of life and the pace of communication has changed. But it's hard to put in place sound public policy, trying to educate the public. It's not... You've got it, all this riffraff going on on social media. Yeah, uh, That's the it, point it, Kelly's that, making. That is more... It makes it more difficult, but it, it shouldn't daunt people because unless you have a determination to argue for good policy, then uh, uh, the show will grind to a halt. Climate change, Western leaders are accelerating efforts to reach net zero emissions within three decades. Now, you were denounced as PM for being in denial about the climate threat. Your thoughts on the energy transition? Well, I am still very much an agnostic about the fundamental proposition. Uh, I am concerned that we are putting too much faith in a rapid embrace of renewables and that in the process we are too rapidly phasing out coal and gas and fossil fuels and that we uh, we could um, uh, hit uh, a big pothole. If I can borrow um, a, a metaphor, I think there's a real danger of that. And I do think that if you're going to have a proper comprehensive debate on our energy future, you must put nuclear power well, on do the you, table. Well, do you regret your stance on the prohibition on nuclear energy as PM? No, because that was for a reason. That was a, I had to do it then in order to get the support of the Greens and Democrats to renew uh, the nuclear medicine facility Lucas at Lucas Heights. Heights because, yeah. incredibly enough, the Labor Party, which then included the current Prime Minister, and let me repeat that, then included the current Prime Minister, opposed our legislation to renew that mandate. And, and that would have been disastrous. It would have had implications for the health and lives of many people. Sticking with climate change, I mean, Britain and Europe, this is well known, they're set for a, a serious energy crisis this northern winter. Just look at Britain. 
energy bills have soared 80%. It'll wipe out uh, almost three quarters of state pension. Uh, clearly, lives will be put at risk. And of course, uh, there's the, uh, the English pubs. Many of them face extinction because of high energy bills. Uh, where are the voices of reason in Britain on this subject? Because this seems to be a widespread bipartisan policy to move to renewable energy dramatically in a short period of time. Well, I don't claim to be uh, an expert on British politics. Oh, come that. on. You're uh, one of the, uh, the leading uh, authorities in this country on uh, Britain. Although I follow it very clearly. You Where do it is, I think the Conservative Party under successive leaders has gone too far too rapidly in embracing the uh, modern theology of climate change. I think that's one of the reasons. And the Labor Party in Britain is, uh, I suppose, um, stuck with the position that it's taken. And I think there's a warning in what's happening in Britain uh, for Australia. Now, we're not in that position, and I'm not going to exaggerate Mm. the situation to pretend we are, but it is a warning of what can happen if you move too rapidly in an ideological zeal to reach a goal more quickly than your critics think you can. Things are very dire in Britain right now. Uh, well, this, this is, this they, is they, they're Heath. not looking good. No, but, no, this uh, is Alistair Heath. They, He's a prominent they, Telegraph columnist. He says that liberalism, conservatism, capitalism all could easily be swept away when the next really big crisis hits us. You supported Brexit. Why do you think post-Brexit Britain is in such a bad way? Well, I think he is a little extreme in his criticism. Well, he's a columnist, but there is, yeah, a, there yeah, is yeah, a lot of angst know, in Britain. But does that mean to say columnists are excused from making extreme statements? No, they're not. They're in, engaged in the public discourse and they have a responsibility uh, to base their uh, claims and predictions on fact and not on alarmism. Oh, but the reality is that there is a lot Look, of angst in Britain. The is reality is, is that Britain is facing... A very expensive energy, so is most of Europe. It's due in part to the crisis caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it's also due overwhelmingly uh, to the needless haste with which uh, the countries of Europe have embraced the energy transition uh, to uh, at the expense of too rapidly phasing out um, fossil fuel generation and the best proof of that is the, the way in which countries like Britain and Germany mm. have been reversing decisions they've made. They're trying to reopen nuclear power plants. Even They're trying the, to keep coal plants. Even going. the German Greens are supporting uh, coal. Even the German... I mean, mm. this is an extraordinary. I can remember way back in the... Just after I became Prime Minister, which was in the middle 90s, talking to Tony Blair, and when Tony Blair was saying, oh, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that, and it's all looking terrific, and we're getting all these benefits from closing coal mi- uneconomic coal mines, which, incidentally, the closures were opposed by Tony Blair's Labor Party, but I'll just, I'll just put that to one side. <laughs> yes. So I do think that um, Europe is a look into the future as to what might fall Australia's way if we are not careful. Thoughts on Boris Johnson's likely successor, Liz Truss? I don't know her. Am I right in saying you've known every British Prime Minister since Thatcher? Oh, yes, I have known every British Prime Minister since Thatcher. It's also right that the whole time that Tony Blair was Prime Minister of Britain, I Prime Minister of Australia, I had a very good mm. association with him, but I knew, and like David Cameron, I know I knew George, not George, well, I knew there was another George Brown, who was a deputy <laughs> yeah, leader right. to Harold Wilson. But anyway, uh, look, <laughs> I don't know. I'm concerned, though, that on the big issue of British politics in the last 20 years, she's changed her position. 
Uh, And it seems as though she may have adjusted her position to to suit the prevailing view of the membership of the Conservative Party. John Howard is author of A Sense of Balance. It's published by HarperCollins. His other books include The Menzies Era and his best-selling autobiography, Lazarus Rising. Let's turn to foreign policy now. This strategic and economic competition between China and the US it is likely to be the defining feature of international relations in coming decades. It's mainly going to take place in our neighbourhood. Now, when you were in power, it was hard to imagine great power rivalry ever returning to our region. But that world has gone away mainly because of what you call China's aggressive international posture. With the benefit of hindsight, do you have any regrets about helping fuel China's growth and power? Have we been feeding the beast, as John Mearsheimer puts it? Well, no. I think one of the great things that we have done as a nation is to help China's economic growth because China's economic growth has helped liberate millions of people from poverty. And if we care about humanity and we care about fairness around the world, we'll applaud the fact that the number of people liberated from poverty over the last 30 years has been the greatest since the Industrial Revolution. And that's been due to the middle classing of China and to a lesser extent India and Australian fossil fuels have played a major part. So really, I mean, people who care about humanity should dip their lids to the contribution that that Australian fossil fuels have made to China's yes, growth. Yes, fair points, but China is converting its economic assets into military assets. I, you I, advocate, but... quote, a self-respecting pragmatism to guide our approach to China. Let me put this to you. How does that apply to a regime that demands our elected government conform to its expectations about how we conduct affairs? I'm thinking about the so-called 14 demands, yeah, for example. 14 points, 14 demands made by a former Chinese ambassador. We just ignore them. Okay. How do we embrace self-respecting pragmatism well, towards... We, oh, well, uh, hang on. But this, this is a regime that posted a digitally altered image of an Australian soldier about to slit the throat of an Afghan child. Well, we criticise that, but we also understand, Tom, that China is our greatest export destination. We say no when the Chinese make unreasonable demands. We call out their persecution of the Uyghurs, Muslim Uyghurs. We remind everybody that China is a, a dictatorial communist state, but we also remember that 1.4 million Australians are of mm-hmm. Chinese heritage, that Chinese is the most widely spoken foreign language in this country, and we recognise uh, that there is a fundamental goodwill between uh, the people of China and the people of Australia. So that's um, self-respecting pragmatism. Okay, that's China. But what about America? Is it still a reliable great power? Oh, I think America is a reliable great power. And the other observation I'd make is that unlike many people, I do not accept the inevitability of China passing America as the dominant economic power in the world. I think China has got an enormous population problem. China's fertility rate is abysmal compared with America's. China's um, demography will be its undoing and it's a country that will grow old before it grows rich. And uh, I think this idea that America will inevitably fall behind China uh, is misplaced and we should never allow ourselves to 
be mesmerised by China's growth. Okay, one can agree with you on all that and still look at America and be horrified by what we're seeing. This is a country that is frighteningly polarised. It's deeply divided. Public confidence in virtually every major US institution, religion, the courts, the media, the military-industrial complex, uh, that's collapsed. Then there's a standard of political leadership in Washington. I mean, you say in your book, President Biden displays regular evidence of the beginnings of cognitive decline. And then, of course, there's the spectre of Donald Trump. And yet you're confident about American global leadership. No, I, I don't feel confident about the alternatives possibly on offer. I think if you're looking for inspiration from the United States, you would look to the way the Americans uh, operate their economy. We can learn a lot. The American economy is still remarkably resilient. Uh, It's capable of producing technological change at a far greater and deeper rate uh, than any other country. And uh, I think we make a mistake when we try and uh, mimic what the Americans do with our political institutions. And we're seeing an example of that with the Prime Minister's decision to have an inquiry into Scott Morrison's appointment of himself. I mean, what what's, what's that possibly got to do yeah. with the future of this country? The point I'm making, Tom, is that this is what happens in America. Mm. Uh, uh, the judicial process has been greatly politicised in America uh, we should avoid that. We've never done that in the past I, and we shouldn't do it in the you're future. You're scathing of Trump. You say in your book you were dumbfounded that the Republicans pre-selected mm. him as their presidential candidate in 2016. But let me put this to you. Unlike his establishment predecessors, John McCain and George W. Bush, whom you knew and admired, Trump did resonate with a lot of forgotten people who are fed up with America's elites. The backlash against globalisation, the endless failed wars in the Middle East, lax border controls, radical socio-cultural change. I mean, isn't Trump just a symptom of America's problems? Tom, the other thing I said in my book was that on balance, and of course it wasn't possible because uh, I'm not and never will be an American citizen, uh, I'd have voted for Trump ahead of Biden in 2020, but it's been Trump's behaviour since he he lost the election that has really finished him in my mind. And that January 6th riot. Look, Mm. nobody likes losing. I didn't like losing um, in March of 2007. I'm quite sure Paul Keating didn't like losing to me in March of 96. And I'm quite sure Scott Morrison didn't like losing uh, to Anthony Albanese, but it's part of the process. Yes. And a seamless, uh, at least on the surface, gracious transfer of power is part of the democratic process and Trump failed to leave the field after he'd been given out twice by the, <laughs> not only by the years of cricketing example, would be completely lost on him. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> My guest is John Howard. Now, finally, the Liberal Party in the Teals, these are safe metropolitan blue ribbon Liberal seats, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth. These are the crown jewels of the Liberal Party. All these seats are now Teals. The question here is... No, two of them are green. Well, sorry, you're right. Very good. Teals or green. (laughs) You haven't lost it, have you? (laughs) But the Liberals have lost these seats. How does a Conservative like Peter Dutton win back these socially progressive electorates? Well, it's wrong to define Peter Dutton as a Conservative, and he said that himself. He said, uh, I'm... Not a, I'm not a conservative, I'm not a moderate, I'm a liberal. Uh, I was, am. Mm. Uh, I'm a liberal who's got... But he's seen as a conservative. How does well, he win them back? Well, I, there's more to Perception Peter Perception counts Dutton in now. politics. Well, yes, I know, but you're adopting the language. 
of, of salami slicing uh, uh, the Liberal Party of Australia. I think what we have to do is remember we are a broad church, as the expression I've used before, and and way you attract them back to church is to emphasise that distillation of conservative and small liberal values that means that we defend institutions that work, we attack the faddish undermining of traditional values, but we also embrace economic reform. I mean, we've got to face the need yes. for further taxation and industrial well, relations reform. Following on from this, and this is, this is actually a, a global Western issue, is Western politics still characterised by that old left-right ideological divide between capital and labour, or is it defined increasingly around identity issues, many of which are shaped by culture? Well, uh, uh, unfortunately, the cultural definitions have intruded much too far. And for example, this talk of quotas, I I see uh, the diversity of candidates for the leadership of the British Conservative Party. It's very hard to find an Anglo-Celtic yeah. white male. And there's no quotas there. Uh, no quotas there. They've got there. the list, though, the Tory list. Yeah, but but that's such an internal... Mm. Part. There's no quotas. And, 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 and the truth is that uh, you don't need quotas, and I think quotas are insulting, particularly quotas for female candidates, are insulting to many women I know in the Liberal Party, many able women, we're absolutely insulted by quotas. I don't need artificial help to get somewhere. It, I mean, Margaret Thatcher didn't need any artificial help. I just raised this broader issue about a potential political realignment in Western countries, including Australia, because Boris Johnson and Brexit, they showed in Britain... Trump showed in the US and even Morrison here in 2019 that centre-right parties, and you did this during your tenure, the so-called Howard Battlers, centre-right parties winning over many working-class constituencies on cultural issues. I suppose the question I'm asking here is, can Liberals keep those socially conservative blue-collar workers on side while at the same time they still appeal to more progressive voters in those erstwhile safe metropolitan seats. Well, there's a couple of flaws in that analysis. Um, the so-called progressive voters in those wealthy seats are not necessarily progressive in the sense in which you use those words. We lost people in those teal seats, seats like Wentworth and North Sydney, both of which I know well. Mm. We lost those seats because... People were cranky with the incumbent Liberal government, but because of their past attitudes, couldn't bring themselves to vote Labor. So they voted for the Teals. And that's the explanation, more than anything, as to why that movement occurred. The Teals were a comfortable alternative, and they'll remain a comfortable alternative whilst ever the Liberal Party falls short in providing things that people normally expect from the Liberal Party, that's common sense on traditional values, but a willingness to change and embrace even radical new attitudes on economic policy. John Howard, great to have you back on Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. That's John Howard, Prime Minister of Australia from 1996 to 2007. His new book is called A Sense of Balance, and it's published by HarperCollins. Up next, 
An update on the situation in Myanmar, what's happened since the military took control of the country back in February 2021. The choreography of the coup was horribly familiar to many in Myanmar. First, the pre-dawn arrests of democratically elected leaders, then a communications blackout, and finally, confirmation of a takeover on national TV. There are fears Myanmar is spiralling towards a protracted civil war after a weekend of deadly violence at the hands of the military junta. Gunfire rings out as protesters scatter. In the bloodiest day since the military junta seized power, more than 100 people were killed in 24 hours. Security forces are firing indiscriminately and no one is safe. They cower behind makeshift barriers, but the shooting is relentless. And yet they come onto the streets day after day, determined to fight for the democracy they voted for. Well, early last year, the military in Myanmar seized power, toppled the elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi and plunged the nation of 55 million into crisis. Now, since the coup, the military has been unable to squash the resistance and the conflict shows no signs of ending. More than 2,000 civilians have been killed and about 14,000 arrested. Just recently, several democracy activists were executed. According to Amnesty International, they were the first executions since the late 1980s. Let's get an update from our panel. Catherine Renshaw is Professor of Law at Western Sydney University with research interests in Myanmar and Southeast Asia. Catherine, welcome to the program. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. And Nicholas Koppel is Adjunct Associate Professor at Monash University. He served as our ambassador to Myanmar from 2015 to 2018. Nicholas, welcome back to Between the Lines. Pleasure to be with you. Catherine, tell us about the military junta's recent executions of these democracy activists. Well, following the coup on the 1st of February 2021, thousands of people were arrested and detained for protesting and dozens were charged, convicted and sentenced to death for crimes like treason and terrorism. Myanmar's had the death penalty on the books for crimes like that since colonial times. But as you said, it hasn't executed anyone for decades. In June this year, the military announced it was going to resume executing prisoners and that it had sentenced more than 100 people to death. And then on July the 25th, it announced in its state-run newspaper, the Global New Light of Myanmar, that it had hung four people. Now, two of them were pro-democracy political leaders. One was actually a former member of parliament, a National League for Democracy politician. The other two people who were executed were convicted of killing a woman who they thought was a military informer. The trials weren't open to the public. A military spokesman explained the executions in a TV press conference, saying that they were justifiable, the men executed had caused the death of civilians, and that people should accept this. So the death penalty is horrific in any circumstance, but here it happened in the context of a civil uprising against a dictatorship. And Nicholas, you've said these executions represent a new low in this country's human rights record, which is saying something. The question here is, why now? Well, I, I think the reason they've happened now is that this the brutal military crackdown, which Catherine has um, 
has just described, hasn't been accepted by the people. You know, they continue to to oppose. They've formed people's defence forces. You know, there's low-level intermittent violence occurring right throughout Myanmar. And yet the the commanders, the ones who are behind the coup, are claiming that they want elections to be held next year. And this is all to give them a fig leaf of legitimacy. So in my view, the executions are an attempt to subdue the population. One, they want to secure the coup and make sure it, it's embedded. And secondly, they want to create an environment without a violent opposition so that they can claim that this election that they propose to hold next year has been conducted freely and fairly. It is an act of desperation because everything else they've tried, including you know, shooting protesters, uh, hasn't worked. The people will not accept the coup. Yeah, well, these executions took place several weeks ago. What's been the international community's response to them? Catherine? Well, the human rights groups, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, etc., cetera, uh, they condemned the hangings outright, as you might expect. So did the US and France and the United Nations. But, I mean, Nicholas makes a good point because the military has already murdered more than 2,000 people. So the response of the international community to the deaths of just four people is notable. Even ASEAN's response was fairly strong by ASEAN standards at least, but ASEAN's important because the international community has given ASEAN the lead in dealing with the crisis as the relevant regional organisation. Hun Sen personally pleaded with the military not to carry out the executions. And the Cambodian the leader? yeah. ASEAN said it was extremely troubled and saddened by them. They were reprehensible because they came just before an ASEAN ministerial summit. Australia also said it was appalled. And finally, Australia said it was actively considering sanctioning leading members of the military like the coup leader, Min Aung Hlaing. So other countries, US, Canada, sanctioned the coup leader five years ago after the Rohingya atrocities. So Australia's well behind the curve. Okay, so these countries are condemning the regime, they're imposing sanctions on it, but they've clearly failed to reverse the coup or or help bring a negotiated settlement to the conflict. Catherine, just keeping with you, is there any prospect of recognising the government in exile? And this, of course, is the national unity of government that was led by Aung San Suu Kyi. Catherine. So a year ago, I would have said no, that there was little prospect of recognising the national unity government that's formed mainly of the former representatives of the legitimately elected government, mainly National League for Democracy members. But a year down the track, it's even less clear than it was before that the military is actually in control of the country that the military's claim to be recognised as the legitimate representative of Myanmar has any legs whatsoever. So the National Unity Government is represented in the United Nations General Assembly where the credentialing committee who determines who speaks for a country is sort of deferring a decision about who is the legitimate representative, but it's allowing the National League for Democracy's representative to speak and it's not allowing the spokesman of the military to make addresses in the UN General Assembly. It's a really important question. It's one that matters a lot to people fighting on the ground in Myanmar and everyone outside who is supporting the pro-democracy forces inside Myanmar. 
Nicholas, you served as our ambassador there uh, from 2015 to 2018. Is the issue of recognition plausible? What happens in, in practice right throughout the world is countries indicate their attitudes towards another government by the level of engagement that they have with it, by you know having ministerial visits, whether they have a defence cooperation program, whether they have an aid program which operates through uh, a government ministry, levels of visits and so on. And so that indicates the government's attitudes towards another government. It isn't practice around the world for countries to, you know, following an election or following a coup, to say we recognise this particular party or not. They recognise the territorial boundaries of a country. They recognise it as a state. And indeed, that's what the UN does through its membership. It's a membership is defined by countries, not by not by governments. In my mind, it's a bit of a furphy. I think it's... Um, what we need to look at a little bit more deeply is the way countries respond to the situation. And we do see big differences. We see differences between North America and Europe, as Catherine has mentioned, which have imposed sanctions on military businesses and on military personnel, while countries like China and Russia have been uh, protecting uh, Myanmar in the UN Security Council and uh, quite happily selling weapons to the country and continuing pretty much as uh, business as usual. So that's that's the way diplomacy is practised in reality. You mentioned China and Russia supporting the junta. Some listeners tuning in, Nicholas, might say that if the Western world supports the transfer of military equipment towards Ukraine in its resistance against Russia, why not for Myanmar? Nicholas? Ukraine was a large supplier of weapons to Myanmar prior to it incurring its own problems. Let's put that aside for a moment. Um, well, the situation in Ukraine is different in the sense that a foreign country, a major power, a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, a nuclear armed country, has invaded the territory of another country. In Myanmar, we've seen an internal coup, um, which regrettably occurs around the world, at least uh, you know in several places every year. They're not comparable in that sense. Catherine Renshaw. So from the perspective of many people inside Myanmar, what I've heard is that they perceive the situation to be comparable between Ukraine and Myanmar because people within both those countries are fighting for their lives in a situation of gross injustice where there's a larger and powerful more powerful oppressor of the people. And they are saying, why is the West so keen to support people in Ukraine and not people in Myanmar who are faced with the same sort of injustice? And the only answer that is reasonable is really that Myanmar sits there under the shadow of China and to have any kind of practical, actual, tangible military support for pro-democracy fighters in Myanmar would be a terribly dangerous situation as perceived by the West. You're on Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and my guests are Catherine Renshaw from Western Sydney University and Nicholas Koppel from Monash University. And we've been talking about the recent executions of democracy activists in Myanmar and the appropriate response. Uh, Nicholas, these executions obviously raise further doubts about the safety of the deposed democratic leader Aung San Suu Kyi. She's now 77. Any news on her fate? There is very little news about Aung San Suu Kyi. We know that she's uh, been imprisoned. As you say, she's 77. I mean, I had the opportunity to meet with her on many occasions when I was ambassador in Myanmar. Even then, Aung San Suu Kyi was uh, 
I would say, you know, relatively frail and certainly not in, in robust health. So we can only hope for the best. We know little about it because visitors are not allowed to meet with Aung San Suu Kyi. Even her lawyers have been forbidden from talking about her in her case. So we really don't know what her condition is. What, what about her economics advisor, the Australian economist, Sean Turnell? Well, Sean Turnell's in a very similar situation. Um, he too, I, I know very well, and we have met on many, many occasions, and uh, I really do hope he gets released very quickly. He went to Myanmar to do good, to help the country modernise its economy, particularly its financial sector, and uh, Aung San Suu Kyi recognised the contribution that he could make. And his, you know, the, the world authority on, on Myanmar's financial system, to be sure. The embassy in Myanmar has been seeking consular access to Sean Turnell, as they are entitled to do under international conventions. But uh, my understanding is that the contact that they've had has been fairly limited. He has been charged and detained. He's been held for over 18 months now. And he's from Macquarie University and our thoughts are with his family. Now, Aung San Suu Kyi, she's widely admired, or she has been, uh, especially across the West. After all, she's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, 1991. However, it's been five years since she presided over a brutal onslaught of the um, Myanmar's minority Muslim population. Catherine, what's the state of the Rohingya ethnic minority today? Well, Tom, it may not be entirely fair to say she presided over the atrocities against the Rohingya because the coup has shown us just how constrained her power actually was. She certainly didn't do enough to protect the Rohingya with the power she had. And when she went to the International Court of Justice, where there are proceedings under the Genocide Convention against Myanmar, she did defend the generals. So... Has that damaged her credibility in the eyes of the West? It definitely damaged her credibility in the eyes of the West and we saw calls for her Nobel Peace Prize to be revoked. Um, in Oxford they were taking down portraits of Aung San Suu Kyi. So she she was definitely discredited um, by her lack of strong stance in protection of the Rohingya, especially given that the West had swung around behind Aung San Suu Kyi during all the years when she was detained by the military under house arrest, etc. Since the coup, the situation of the Rohingya has got much worse. Five years ago, three quarters of a million of them fled across the border to Bangladesh and there they remain in refugee camps, the world's largest refugee camps. In the camps themselves, there's little work or education, not enough food or medicine and fires keep ripping through the camps. There's still... Rohingya in Myanmar as well, of course, more than 100,000 of them in displacement camps that are just ghettos, they can't leave. There's fighting inside Rakhine State um, between the military and one of the armed ethnic organisations. So the Rohingya are still without citizenship, still vulnerable, it's still a despairing situation. Where's the outrage been over these terrible events five years ago, Nicholas? I mean, the army, supported by local gangs, they went through these Muslim villages, raping, burning, killing along the way. Some listeners might say that the West's response was pretty feeble and that it shows that atrocities against voiceless Muslims count for little or nothing across Western capitals. Is that a fair critique, Nicholas? 
Well, I think we need to talk about the world's response to what's happened to the Rohingya in Myanmar, not just what the West's response has been. I mean, the greatest response has come from Bangladesh, which has had, as Catherine's mentioned, you know, three quarters of a million people pushed into its country. And it's uh, had to host that refugee community. But the, the response of, of the rest of the world has also been in terms of providing quite extensive uh, humanitarian assistance through humanitarian agencies and directly to Bangladesh. The Organisation for Islamic uh, Cooperation has uh, led the international push to hold Myanmar to account for this. The Gambia, which has um, taken the case in the International Court of Justice against Myanmar for crimes against humanity. So to, to focus on a Western response, I think misses the main picture here, where a lot of the action that has been taken uh, has been by other countries. But the financial support through UN agencies, humanitarian agencies, have, has of course come from, from the richer countries, as you would expect. That's Nicholas Koppel, an adjunct associate professor at Monash University, who served as our ambassador to Myanmar from 2015 to 2018. And Catherine Renshaw is professor of law at Western Sydney University. Her research interests include Myanmar and Southeast Asia. And that's the program. In our next episode, we'll ask the Spectator columnist Cindy Yu if she really is a shill for the Communist Party of China. Well, I think I am, actually. My first language is Mandarin. I still speak and read it. Um, and I went to Oxford University, so I've had a British education, but I'm very much in touch with my Chinese side, you could say. Um, and my podcast is trying to basically explain the Chinese way of thinking, looking at things, the Chinese government's way of looking at things. So if anyone is ideally placed to, you know, subtly <laughs> advance Beijing's agenda within the British establishment, it's me. And of course, writing this column is the perfect double Cindy Yu, a communist shill? That's next time on Between the Lines. If you missed my extended interview with Republican foreign policymaker John Bolton, just check your recent Between the Lines podcast feeds. I'm Tom Switzer, and thanks for your company. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.